Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, March 10th. I am your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you live from Blastoff Studios in Times Square. We have a great show today. My guest is a frequent guest here at Good Morning New York, Jason Meister. We are going to talk to Jason today on the status of the U.S. housing market, a little change of pace here today. Jason's focus is that of residential development, residential sales, and commercial real estate. And as vice president in the capital markets at Avison Young, he is engaged with the marketing and disposition of investment-grade property. He has undertaken and completed the sale of various types of real estate. He has also been involved with sites for ground-up development. He is a pundit and makes frequent appearances on the Fox News Channel. Good morning, Jason, and nice to see you again. Good morning, Vince. Thanks for having me. No problem. So let's get into it. The the housing recovery began losing steam toward the end of 2014. Rising home prices and tight credit combined to sideline potential buyers, especially those considering investment in their first home. While hopes are high for 2015 spring market, there are several headwinds that could derail some of the optimism. Is it a tighter uh, credit situation for these potential buyers? And, and what about the pricing and the low inventory? What is your opinion on that? So, you know, Vince, I think what, what, what drives a housing market um, in the most, for the most part, are jobs. Um, people pay for homes with jobs. They pay for homes with wage with wages. And right now, we we really had what I would call a jobless recovery. Um, you know, while we we actually saw our job numbers go up about two hundred ninety five thousand in February, which fell to about five point five percent. You you which was the twelfth straight month of an increase in jobs. We actually, you know, when you actually look at the job participation rate in America, it fell to about 62.8%, which was a staggering 37-year low. So when you actually look at who's participating in the jobs in, in America today, you look and you see that about 92 million Americans were not in the labor force in February. And so, you know, I talk about jobs because that's really how people pay for their homes. And if we have you know, a lack of, if wages are stagnant and not growing, which they really have been, and you, you are missing these jobs, it's very difficult for a robust housing recovery because the housing recovery, for the most part, has been sort of backed, backstopped by investors, that, that's institutional investors who bought right after the housing bust in 2008, mm-hmm. and mom and pop investors you know, the small-time investors that buy a, a single-family home or in a condo in, in, a, in a major urban center. But for the most part, there's been a pullback r- more recently in of those investors. So I think what, again, it comes back to the jobs. And while the rate has gone down, I mean, has gone up, the participation has gone down. And that's what I, I'm you know focused on when I see for housing market. We're going to talk a little bit about a lot of what you just uh, started with. But for example, institutional investors, and you just talked about and mentioned investors, played a pivotal role in the housing market's recovery by purchasing hundreds of thousands of properties 
and then renting them out. Typical investor profile. But now they've realized substantial gains on their investment and home price increases have slowed. Many of these landlords may be ready to cash out. So, you know, my question is, why are the investors beginning to step out of the market? What's, you know, what's happened to the long-term investment? You know, everybody used to look at housing or real estate as a great investment aside from a stock portfolio and and always considered it long-term investment. It seems now they want to cash out because they're unsettled. You know, it's not that they're unsettled, really. I think what it is, what's driving the pullback in the investors, especially institutional investors, is that they came in and flocked in when prices were really depreci- you know, down. They were low at an all-time low. There was a lot of dep- uh, prob- problem properties, distressed properties, sellers that were in trouble. That's when they saw their opportunity. And those foreclosures and those distressed properties, as we saw prices quickly increase since the housing bust, th- these institutional investors are very smart investors. They're savvy real estate investors, and they see that the opportunity for these distressed deals, these foreclosed deals, aren't as robust as they were they were a few years ago or a couple years ago. And they're, they're, the, the prices have gone up so dramatically that they're not seeing the opportunity anymore. And so they're sort of pulling back. And now you're, you're, you're starting to see the owner-occupants get into the market. I know you and I work in the New York City market more specifically, so it's a little bit – we're a little jaded right. for, to some degree because we see, you know, it, we see a very robust market. So again, I know we're talking about the national housing market right now, so I have to just remind people that, that while we can talk about the national housing market, there are some sub-markets like New York City right. you know, that have a much different uh, trend line. But – the national market, for the most part, the housing market is what I'm discussing right now. Where, where, where are we though on a national level from on the foreclosure? You know, how, where are foreclosures these days? Better, worse, we're, about the same? We're in a we're in a much healthier place. But uh, you know, again, I think what we have to pay attention to very closely is that prices went up too fast, too quickly since mm-hmm. the bust, and a lot of that was driven by monetary uh, federal monetary policy and and which drove you know interest rates to an all-time low which we're seeing today and so money was virtually free and then you also have um th- these investors foreign investors in in places like Manhattan, Miami, Las Vegas um that that have been sort of propping up the market and and pushing the prices up and you and I know in New York and Miami you know the the foreign amount invest uh, foreign investment from the chinese the russians these these investors are just getting money outside of their countries and parking it here as a safe haven and that's driving the pricing up making it more competitive for domestic sort of owner occupants i call them owner occupants because unlike the foreign investors they are actually occupying the premises that they're buying but you know this whole talk about um you know the housing market being propped up I think it's 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 also important to point out that there was a lot that you know when you look back at the home ownership rate in this country, um, y- you see that before before World War II, I believe it was below fifty percent home ownership in this country. But if you look on a chart on a graph uh, of of home ownership, you'll see that in the 1990s we had a a very significant um, spike, and that spike lifted home ownership. I think somewhere between 2004 2005, 
you saw a spike north of 70%. Mm-hmm. Um, what drove that, for the most part, was you know, America, uh, you know, government um, intervention in the housing market. You, what you had was um, basically the the government got in the in the in the way of sort of promoting home ownership because, again, it's it's a great way to build wealth. But if it's promoted, you have to be careful as to whether it's it's the right way of uh, approaching the housing. I think. I think, in my opinion, a free market housing market is definitely more healthy than when the government gets in there and sort of promotes home ownership, which uh, we can get on, you know, a little later in the show. But I think it's an important point that we need to focus on because recently the home ownership rate dropped to a 20-year low, which was actually 64.5% at the end of last year. And that was a 37-year low. Um, and so the last time that happened was in... I believe it was March of 1978. And so <clears throat> I think we just have to be very careful with how we're promoting home ownership in this country. And, and so that's what I wanted to do. We're, we're going to get to that in a bit. But I, I just wanted to get back a little bit on the foreign buyers. You know, as you said, you know, they helped prop up the housing market in recent years. And, and certainly here in New York City and in a lot of the other urban centers, we've seen a lot of that. But across the country, uh, it's it's been in place as well. But while sales to Chinese buyers have remained strong, sales to buyers from Europe and Russia where the economies are struggling are starting to lag. For example, California reports, I think, a 25% drop in investment sales in all of last year, in, in 2014. So are the investors uh, from China, from Europe and Russia starting to pull back a little bit too across the country? Or is it just, you know, in urban centers where we're seeing it in New York? Yeah, I, I think it's mostly urban centers. I think that that's where most of this foreign investment is investing. I don't think that they really have spread their <clears> wings <throat> into some of the, of the more tertiary markets. They have spread their wings into tertiary cities, urban centers. Um, but for the most part, I think that there has been a little bit of a foreign uh, investor pullback, not as significant as the institutional investors and the mom and pop investors. But uh, as of late, you've seen some pullback, um, but that's due to some of the chaos going on in the world right now. I mean, there is a housing bubble and a finance bubble in China that they're dealing with. You have uh, what's going on in Russia. You have um, there's, uh, you know, obviously oil hit a uh, very all-time low, below $50. I think it was $48 a, a, a crude, a barrel. Um, obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on in Russia and, and, and the Middle East. So, you know, I think that with all that going on, um, you know, the dollar has been on the rise. And so it's a little bit more difficult for these foreigners to uh, pay up for these properties. And so they've been pulling back a little bit, not a lot, but definitely a little bit. It seems to be cyclical. Explain for the listening audience, you know, around the world, what you mean when you say mom and pop. Investor. Right. So, <clears throat> you know, mom and pop investors are small investors in a in a uh, sub market in, in, in a market where they understand the market very well and they speculate on that market and uh, they'll buy a small, uh, you know, single family residence. They'll fix it, what you call a fixer upper. Um, maybe they'll paint, you know, paint the repaint the house, uh, you know, renovate the kitchen and some bathrooms and then they'll hold for a short period of time. They may rent for a little while and then they'll put it back on the market at a, uh, an increased price and make and hopefully make some money. Um, those types of investors as well have st- started to pull back because, again, prices went up very fast, very quickly and 
it's not it's no longer i mean in 2013 we saw about a 11 to 12% increase in home prices across this country which really was a very uh i guess artificial uh price increase i would say on average home prices in this country should rise if, if on a healthy year about 2 to 4%. So when you say when you look at a 12, 11 to 12% increase year over year that's a that's a very dramatic jump and it's it's again I think it was driven uh in those early post bubble years by federal monetary policy low interest rates foreign buyers mom and pop and institutional investors and what we were missing was this owner occupier and uh we'll get into this in a little later in more in a lot more detail because it's something a lot of pundits and uh, economists have been talking about but the first time home buyer that first entry level buyer has been really missing from the housing market and um we should talk more about it but that first time home buyer is the beginning of what I call the housing food chain and it's just like a food chain any food chain there's a housing food chain so if the first time home buyer isn't buying then the person that they would be buying from isn't going to be able to upgrade into that other home and it it sort of creates a domino effect absolutely so you see this food chain not only in the urban centers or in new york city as we are used to but you see this all around the nation it's a it's a national trend it's been going on that i mean at least we've been focused on for the last 2 years <clears throat> and you continuously hear this is the year for the first time home buyer but so far what i as far as i can see this first time home buyer is still really missing from the the food chain um and part of it again like i said in the beginning of the show it goes back to jobs and when you look at jobs among what i call the millennial generation you you'll see that what i call the real u6 unemployment that's not just unemployment which we always hear these numbers 5. Point whatever 5.5% unemployment the u6 number actually will take out those that are um working uh, part time not real jobs or are lo- still looking or not looking for jobs so that real u6 unemployment is hovering today millennial generation about 15%. That's a high number. So again, a lot of millennials move back in with their parents into the their basements um or or attics. Um and they're not jumping, I don't see them jumping in the into the housing market so quickly. The other thing that I'm seeing by these millennials is there's uh there's a lot of uh, technology jobs. There's a lot of startup companies. They move from New York to LA. There's they need mobility today. And if you're tied down to a 30-year mortgage and you have a job that's paying for that mortgage and the the your boss says, "Well, we're we're selling our company to Google and we're moving to Silicon Valley." You have a you have a problem on your hands. You, you either have to rent that property out. So I think they like the mobility. I think the American dream, to some degree, for the millennial generation, has changed a little bit. I think, you know, the white picket fence and the dog and the yard isn't necessarily there. There's a migration to urban centers, and there's and there's also this mobility factor that I think, at least, I'm seeing. Um, so I think it's something that we need to focus on. But again. Um, the first-time homebuyer hasn't really stepped into the market. All right. We're going to continue with Jason Meister in just a minute. We have to take a break. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We're back with Jason Meister, and we're talking about the U.S. Um, uh, the U.S. housing market uh, and the strength uh, and changes as we see going forward in 2015. So, you know, good news for the non-investor type, Jason. The home buying process should get a little less hectic in 2015 thanks to the eased inventory and credit plus the exit of some investors from the market. Have we already begun to see this shift? Yeah, I think that it's it's getting easier. Um, I think that uh, the housing market, uh, I think people are looking. They're trying to, you know, step in. Um, but, you know, I think to some degree – you, uh, you you see an affordability issue right now because prices have, like I, we've been saying over over the show so far, prices have gone up very quickly. You have um, interest rates looming on the horizon that they're going to increase, which which will inevitably make things more uh, you know expensive because the interest rate will go up eventually. I think we're we're now talking about sometime this year, and uh, with those job numbers last week, I think you're going to see it happen by the end of this year. Um, and you also have these uh, another issue with regards to affordability and going back to the first time home buyer is student loan debt mm-hmm. is another major sort of shoe to drop, so to speak. And that student loan debt is a burden on affordability. So when you take interest rates going up uh, potentially this year, the student loan debt, um, which uh, the average student today in America graduates with about 30,000 in debt Mm. um, and the home prices, you have an affordability issue. Yeah. And, you know, in my thoughts too on, you know, my comment here when I said the the exit of the investors from the market and the ease with which some of these first time buyers or any buyers uh, are feeling, I think, you know, we have gotten to the point where we're, we're pricing from a global, for a global market, we're pricing for the investor. And if the investors are pulling back just a little bit and prices ease off just a little bit, I think that gives, you know, uh, better reason for some of these first-time buyers or any buyer. I think that's to right. To jump in the marketplace. Yep. Correct. And I think that, that again, the 2 to 4% price yeah. increases, that's what we're going to start to see, I think, between now and 2018. It's not going to be that 12%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a healthy, that's a much more healthy growth. And that's what I'm hoping we see. And that will make things a little bit more affordable. 
Absolutely. So let's talk about these millennials. There has been a lot of talk recently about the boomerang generation. I thought that was interesting when I was doing my research. Moving back home after college, laden with student debt, as you just referred to, and struggling to find decent paying jobs. As a result, this group of would-be homebuyers seems to be putting off a core part of the American dream, right? Meet somebody, settle down, buy a home. Uh, while some are quick to say the millennials simply don't value home ownership and are redefining the American dream, the facts reveal something else. They simply can't afford it right now. You know, wh- you alluded to it a little while ago. So, you know, what do we need to do to get them back into this game or this dream, this American dream of home ownership? Right. And why can't they afford it right now? So I think so. There's, so you asked two questions. How, how do we get them in and how uh, and how do we you know, make it more affordable. Both are, are interesting questions because I actually have a pretty uh, different opinion in that I don't think we, we should be trying to get them in. And I don't think we should be trying to make it more affordable. I think that those, the sort of, and I'm, I totally understand why and appreciate why we would, we would think that that would be a good idea because they represent 40% of existing home sales historically. And without them, we're not going to have that robust owner occupant in, and and again the the beginning of the housing food chain and and if that's a missing link, forty percent pulling forty percent out of that housing market is a pretty big percentage. Um, they're 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 hovering about thirty, maybe a little less than thirty percent right now. So, but but he, but that's the whole thing when we were talking about it earlier about this sort of idea of trying to promote home ownership because it's the American dream because it's a way to um, build wealth. You know, pushing sort of this, trying to make things more affordable and pushing it, I think that that's the, the issue we have today. Um, it's, it's a, that's what's hurting the housing market. I think if we focus more on jobs, job creation, wage growth, this younger generation will eventually buy just like uh, past generations did because those jobs. But if we look at the housing market and we and similar to what the government has done with this lowering the down payment to make things more affordable um, for younger people. Um, they're now uh, doing 3% down payments um, backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, and they're also cutting the the insurance premium um, to about 1.8%. You know, these policies are, you know, sort of making that, yes, they're trying to make things more affordable, but at the same time, they're, um, pushing loans on these younger people that, again, can't afford them. And that comes back to the jobs and the wage growth. So I just, I fear this sense of pushing loans on, we've seen this before. This is what we did before 2008. And I want to, I want to focus very strongly on this because it's an important thing. We're going to talk about jobs and and, and wage in a a bit. And I happen to agree with you, but let's get back a little bit. You mentioned earlier, you know, the, the cost for higher education are among the fastest, you know, rising costs in American culture today, student loan debt. Since 1980, tuition costs at U.S. colleges and universities have risen 757%. I mean, these, these numbers to me are mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, from when I went to school to what these, these kids are paying today, it's it, mind-boggling. It's, it's a tuition bubble. It's, it's a tuition bubble, for absolute sure. The latest study says, as you just said, 70% of college graduates leave school with an average debt of about thirty dollars to $33,000. You mentioned that a little while ago. Right. You know, so that much debt at that age does not go away quickly, and the impact of this is being felt in several areas notably purchasing a house. Is there a workaround to this? I mean, how do these guys and gals get through school 
you know, easier than they are going through today with this much debt when they leave? And right. what could they do about that? Yeah, I think it comes to the tuition. I think that the tuition has gotten out of out of control in this country. Totally. I, I mean, education is a, vital to our uh, economy, to our to our growth as a as a country. I, but I think that the these tuitions um, and some of the most expensive colleges in the country. I mean, these 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 students or children that graduate high school don't even. I mean, these are these are people that are not working, and so yes, they have to take on student debt. But it, at at the magnitude that they're taking it on, it, it because the the tuition cost is 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 mind blowing, and I think it's a it's a very big problem. I don't know the I don't know how we solve it. I think tuition needs to come down. I think it, it can't survive at the numbers that it is, and I think it's going to come down. I was going to ask you, I mean, none of us have a crystal ball here, and none of us, you know, if we could rather, we would we would solve that tuition problem. But how do we actually get some of these universities and colleges around the U.S. to kind of, you know, come to grips with, you know, the affordability aspect of, of everything and the tuition costs being too high? How do we lower the, 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 the costs of going to school? It, everybody has the right to an education and everybody should get an education, right. but how do we do this? I think that um, like like all bubbles, um, sometimes it takes the market to correct itself. And I think that, you know, these these colleges and, and, uh, and universities are going to see, uh, you know, endowment. They're going to see a pushback and they're going to have to deal with it. And I think that the way that we're going to have to deal with it is to lower these tuitions. I think the tuitions are out of control. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we're going to get into much more. I'm, I'm very interested in talking about the wage and, and job uh, situation. So we'll take a break right now. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll be back with Jason Meister right after these messages. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're talking to... Um uh, Jason Meister, Vice President of Avison Young and also a pundit at Fox News. And we're talking about the status of the U.S. marketplace. So, Jason, U.S. employers added a surprisingly strong 295,000 net new jobs in February of this year, while the unemployment rate fell to a post-Great Recession low of 5.5%. 
the Labor Department said that last, last Friday. The jump in job creation exceeded economists' forecast. Wage growth, however, wage growth, however, continued to be slow last month. For the last 12 months ending in February, wages rose only by 2%, well above the low inflation rate, but not nearly the level economists would like to see coming out of a deep recession. What's up with this? Yeah, so, look, the the num- the job numbers you just uh, said, the 295,000 jobs that we uh, added in February, that's a good that's a good amount of jobs and that, and that again that like you said it was the 12th straight consecutive month of of job increases but uh, as we were talking about earlier we ha- it's a very misleading number because you have to focus on the job participation rate i know that um all uh, the po- politicians want us to focus on the $295,000 job increase and the 5.5% number but Talk I, about the persi- yeah, participation rate. rate. Let me tell you what the participation rate is. The labor participation rate is the percentage of the population who participated in the labor force by either having a job or seeking one. That number fell to 62.8%, a staggering 37-year low. That means 92 – actually, excuse me, 93 million Americans were not in the labor force in February, which was last month. That's a staggering number, and that number is why you know we're going to have until that that participation rate you know comes much much higher. You're going to see a, a trouble in the housing market f- from a national perspective of owner occupants because they don't have jobs. Without jobs, they can't buy homes. So I think it's very misleading to focus on just the the the, the unemployment rate, five point five percent. That seems like it's a great number, but when you peel that onion back and you actually look at the participation rate, you see that ninety three million Americans were not in the labor force in February. You know, how do we correct that? Because that that's a big differential, right? So, so what do we do? What do we put in place to fix that? Sure. No, it's a great question, um, and I think that uh, you know, in my opinion. Um, that that's going to be, uh, you know, tax policy. Um, it's going to be supporting small uh, businesses across this country, um, and it's going to really, you know, it's about it's about embracing a free market society that really uh, values the employer and and wants the the employer to hire. Um, and and also it goes to the wage growth issue, which you touched on, which is a stagnant two point two percent annually. I think we need. You know, we need wage growth and we need jobs in this country. We don't need new homes. We don't, you know, we need jobs. And with those jobs, we will see the housing market uh, be a, you know, have a healthy, robust, uh, you know, recovery because it's still, it's amazing. We're still talking about quote unquote a recovery and we're talking about 2008, you know, and it's 2015. It's time, you know, to be beyond this. I mean, the commercial real estate market recovered in 2010, um, and again, I, it goes back in my mind to this government intervention in the housing market because you saw it in the housing market, in the residential housing market, but there really wasn't any government intervention in the commercial real estate real estate market. And why why the commercial real estate market rebounded so quickly? Because when the government gets in to a, a market, a free market, and metals in it, you see things get propped up artificially. And that's where the prices went up too quickly, too fast, federal monetary policy. People bought homes that shouldn't have. You had another wave of foreclosures. And you never saw a bottom to the market. When you see a bottom to a market, investors 
owner occupants that have been looking that's that are sitting on the sidelines they know that they see that there's a bottom that there's a price capitulation and they jump in and buy homes but because they never really were able to see that bottom because there was so much intervention by the government to try to heal you know it was it was well intentioned i'm not saying it wasn't well intentioned but when you when they never see a bottom they don't jump in and buy and and that's the, that was really the problem in the housing market you recently wrote an article on Fox.com, Housing Policy, Washington is the Problem, Not the Solution. Um, you say it is uh, once again the business of promoting – Washington is once again in the business of promoting homeownership, only this time their mission is to make homes more affordable for first-time homebuyers and, and borrowers with lower credit scores. Most troubling with this proposition is that Washington is the problem, not the solution when it comes to housing policy. Can you explain to our listeners your thoughts on this? I mean I, I – think I agree with you 100% on this, but give me you know, your thoughts behind writing this article. Sure. What are you trying to tell us here? So you know, what I'm trying to say is that when you look at, in, 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 uh, at the housing market you, and you look back, again, before World War II, we were at a, below fifth, a little below 50% home ownership rate. We spiked above 70% in the 1990s with the Community Reinvestment Act and other sort of federal uh, promotion of homeownership, they were basically trying to get people to buy homes because, again, it was the American dream and uh, let's try to make it more affordable, make it more affordable, keep on making houses more affordable and people will buy and they did buy, but they they weren't ready to buy and it's okay not to buy. It's okay to rent. Um, it's a roof over your head. If, you know, it's not, housing markets go up and they go down and you know, these younger people, millennials, we've been talking about a lot on this show, they saw their parents, they saw their, you know, aunts and uncles, they saw, you know, their relatives lose homes in 2008. They understand that housing markets go up and they go down. And I know we're jaded again in, in the New York City market, people, in the, you know, in other markets around the country that are, you know, always very strong. There's a lot of foreign buyers and investors. And, the you know, but you know, across this country, that's not really the picture. And again, we saw the U.S. homeownership rate drop to own, to about 64%, which was a 20-year low uh, last year, at the end of last year. I think that, you know, that's happening because of the, the, the government intervention. And I think that, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, I'll give you an example. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac there is no Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in Canada. Um, Canada is a great example of what, what I would consider a much healthier sort of free market housing market. They're a 20th percentile of our default rate. They don't have the equivalent of a Fannie Mae and a Freddie Mac, and they require 20% down payments. Um, if, if we required not even 20%, 15%. You said 15%. Yeah, I was going to say. Go ahead. Right. In my article, I was saying 15%. If you require 15% down and you make sure that someone has three times the cost of the mortgage uh, of in income, okay, coming in, uh, you're, you're not going to have the defaults, the foreclosures. You're not going to have that distress because people will be buying homes that they can totally afford. But let me ask you something. At 15%, is that enough skin in the game? I think it's enough. I think that could you ask from – could you <clears throat> – could you from a from a policy standpoint, can you get 15 to 20% is probably enough? But yes, I think 15% – is enough skin in the game, but we're talking about not 10, not, not eight, not five. We're talking about 3%. Mm. That's you and I know a residential broker. Okay. 
in this country on, on average makes a 6% commission. I, I looked it up on average. Um, we might get a little lower of a rate on average in Manhattan because prices are much higher here in this market. But the average commission is about 6%. That means 3% down. That means that the homeowner only has to put, put down half of what the broker makes on the sale of that house. That's in my opinion, that's ridiculous. It's not enough. It's not enough skin in the game. And without their skin in the game, right. they're not, they're just not, they're, they don't have the, they can walk from that home. And again, I don't think we should be pushing loans at these low rates with no skin in the game. So the takeaway here, I guess, is have we learned anything from the last housing cycle that the government has no business promoting home ownership? Right. I mean, so, seriously, what? I think that we, we hopefully we have learned. I think that um, we're starting to. I'm seeing that we're starting to repeat some of those failed policies with these low, very low down payments, with cutting the premiums, because because they're approaching the problem with saying, how do we make things more? How do we make these homes more affordable? Instead of looking at the job picture, which is the other total side of the equation. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you because I this is where I agree 100. percent So why is it so important for the government to want to push? home ownership, when it's more important to have people in this country more comfortable, and more comfortable means a good job, a steady job, a decent wage. Correct. You know, so where's, you know, where is the disparity here? Why is it so important in their mind, in these governmental institutions' mind, to push home ownership when more importantly, we have people who need work and who are getting work but need to earn more money? That's where the comfort comes in, and that's where I believe you will lead to right. the American dream at some point. Well, I think it, what it comes down to is government really doesn't create anything. Um, the private sector creates. They right. create, right? You and I create jobs. Um, people create jobs. People are inventors. They come up with patents. They come up with ideas. The people you know, the, in the private sector create. Government doesn't create. They can only sort of redistribute. Mm. So when they look at the housing market, they say, well, we could we – could, uh, take a Fannie Mae and a Freddie Mac, which is government-sponsored enterprises, and we could back loans at 3% down, and, and we can make things more affo- these homes more affordable, and therefore you'll see the first-time homebuyer look at, oh, I can put 3% down, and I can buy a house, and I can create wealth for myself. But the long term, is that really what we want to be in the business of doing and then having another housing bubble potentially in the future? I think we should be focused more on policies that promote – not promote, but – uh, advocate for and uh, uh, you know propose policies that help employers create more jobs at, and and wage growth and and again I think it's embracing the free market and I don't think that we're seeing so much of that right now I think it's more of well how do we make things more affordable to every to everyone and I think that that's the mistake we're making um, and that's why I wrote that article. I agree. Let's talk quickly about the Fed and interest rates. Do you expect rates to be modestly higher in 2015? I I do. I think um, I don't have a crystal ball like anyone else. I think that if you look at what the uh, Janet Yellen's been saying, uh, the Fed chairwoman, um, when you look at the job the job picture, they're not again they're not looking at the participation rate, but they're looking at this uh, you know 5.5 percent unemployment. That's a that's a healthy number, right? I think that they think that it's going to be a time where we can start to raise rates, but I, I, I'm worried about it. I think that these low, these extremely low rates have been driving and fueling this economy for quite some time now. And I think it's almost like my analogy would be, you know, we're almost on our economy's on life support. And as you pull a plug 
the question is, will that uh, economy start to suffer from the plug being pulled? And, and we'll have to wait and see. Um, I think we're going to have to pull that plug very slowly. Um, so we'll see how, how, how high those rates rise. I, I don't see them rising very high very quickly because I don't think we possibly – I don't think we can. Do you think an upcoming uh, presidential election uh, is going to have anything to do with those rate increases or not? I don't think – I think that – you know, I don't think so. I think that we're going to see uh, some rate increase by, by the end of this year um, regardless of, of any election that's on the horizon. Um, and I think that we're just going to have to see how we react to that as, a, as an economy. In comparison to a historical average of about 3.3% annual GDP gross domestic product, is the expectation of 2.8% growth enough to keep the Fed on track to raise rates for the first time in June? 2015 or, or not? You know, that the GDP numbers are not nearly as good as the job numbers. Um, I don't think that they're, they're really sufficient, but it seems like if, you've, if you're listening to Yellen and you're listening to the, the Fed, I think you will see uh, rates increase by the end of this year due to the overall picture of the economy, sort of the picture being, um, you know, we're in a much better place than we were a year ago or a year and a half ago. So I think we're going to see rates increase. Um, and uh, again, we'll have to see how the economy reacts to that. I, I am not as optimistic as some others out there. The U.S. remains the primary growth engine to the rest of the world. True or false? It definitely does. It still is uh, an unbelievable country with, um, you know, the American dream of, of having a job. Um, it, you know, it's the gold coast, you, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here still. Um, you know, so I think it is an engine of the world and, um, it will continue to be, um, there's a lot of trouble out in the world right now. Um, we talked about the middle East, Russia, um, you saw the oil prices, um, drop below $50 a barrel earlier this year or late, late the end of last year. Um, so I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of turmoil, which is actually driving a lot of foreign investment. I believe there was $92 billion of foreign investment last year. And actually, uh, an interesting um, statistic is that one third of that in foreign investment was coming, is coming from China. And what's also interesting about that is that we're now, um, we have a new visa policy and we've extended visas from w- one year to 10 years, uh, and student visas from one year to five years for Chinese. So I think we're actually going to see a surge. Um, this might be my next article, but I might write about that I might write about, but we're going to see a surge of Chinese investment on top of an already all time high. They were, they, they've hit their, their historic high of investing in, in the U S last year. All right, we're going to take a break. We will be back with Jason Meister. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. 
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back with Jason Meister, Vice President, Abazin Young, and a pundit at Fox News. Uh, on a fairly regular basis, we're talking about the status of the U.S. housing market. So, Jason, rent increases will outpace home value growth in 2015, with many millennials forming new households as renters, as we talked about before, maybe not able to purchase at the moment. This will continue to push the demand for multifamily housing, and rents will keep rising. In fact, forecasts say <clears throat> that rents will rise 3.5% in 15, outpacing analysts predicting 2.5% for the annual Home sale price gains. The rental market is strong. Do you predict that this is going to last through the year? I do. I think that the multifamily rental market sector is white hot. And that's, again, it's it's just a trend that we've been talking about throughout the show. If people aren't buying homes, they're renting. They need a roof over their head. I think it's great. Um, you know, I think that the investors that are investing in this rental market um, are going to see great returns um, in all the urban centers. Uh, and as well as tertiary markets. So I think it's a sector that's going to continue to rise. Um, you're seeing all-time highs on these rents. The question is, again, when the, those rents become too high to the point where it makes a little bit more sense to buy, there's going to be some people that will start to buy, but the, the, the demand is going to outpace the supply on the, rental, on the rental market for the rest of this year for sure. Let me ask you something about the the you know the rental market versus the purchase market, and certainly here in New York City and in, in most other urban centers, there's a stigma maybe to renting versus ownership. And even when people can't necessarily afford to buy, they still run around thinking, "Well, I'm doing something wrong because I don't own something. I don't own a piece of the rock. I'm renting." You know, what is this stigma about? And is it okay in 2000? Because I happen to agree with what you said before. It's okay. It's a roof over your head. And until you can afford to get there, don't stress. But why is it such a stigma uh, in this land, in, the, in, in this nation, to not own your own home? Well, I mean, I, I think that you can appreciate someone wanting to own something, um, take ownership over it. They have the ability to call it theirs. Um, as as you know, if you're a rent, if you're a tenant, you you actually you have a right to use the premises, but you don't have ownership over it. So that whole sense of ownership, I get that. But it, you know, you're you're 100 right, Vince. Renting has there's no there should be no stigma. You put a roof over your head, and I mean, in Manhattan, rents are people pay crazy amounts of rent. It would take Correct. the it would take the salary of the U.S. president to afford a Tribeca one bedroom. And, and I'm not kidding about that. I looked it up. It's true. Um, it's un- it's mind blowing. So you know, it's not. Uh, it's renters in Manhattan shouldn't be you know feeling any stigma, and renters across this country shouldn't feel any stigma. It's okay to to rent until you can afford to buy. Um, you may again want the mobility. You may not want to be di- tied down to a mortgage. And there's some beautiful rental product out there um, all across the country. So I don't. I again, I think this this stigma should be taken away. I think that that's the problem right now is that there is, there is some type of stigma that everyone thinks they need to own a home and they don't. 
just put a roof over your head. And there's plenty of people that are looking. They buy they buy properties because they want rental income, and that so there's no issue there. I think that renting is a great thing. I agree, and I and and you know I'm always perplexed sometimes when when you think back. I think it's part of the 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 whole American dream. You own something, you have a great and steady job. You're going to get a pension when you retire. You have benefits, right? And you know the world is you, is wonderful. If you love real estate and you're a renter, you can invest in a REIT in a real estate exactly. investment trust in the stock market. And by the way, you might make more money on that REIT in the stock market than you do on that condo or that house on that or that house. So you know I think there's plenty of ways if you like real estate to invest and not own. Absolutely. Analysts say that next year the housing market will be driven more by underlying economic fundamentals, job growth, incomes, and household formation. We've talked a little bit about this. Rather than by macroeconomic factors such as national price crashes. In the past, mortgage interest rates and price recovery have driven the housing market nationally. Now we're seeing those that those factors aren't nearly as important as local economics. Do you agree? I do. I think that the uh, household formations, which you just identified, that's that's going to be crucial because, uh, like we said earlier, if people aren't getting uh, married and moving out of their parents' um, basements or attics and uh, getting a, a nice stable job, um, they're not going to. They're not. They're not even going to think about buying a home. So it's when you start to, ha- you know, have a family and have a baby and settle down and have a family, that's when you start to consider buying and owning a home. And I think that if that job, if that, sorry, that job, that household formation number isn't, isn't coming up, then we're going to see that, that portion of the housing market still, that first time home buyer, that entry level buyer still going to be missing. And again, I don't think it's a thing that we should be promoting them to buy. I think that we should be focused on the jobs and the job picture and getting them into jobs that they, that are stable, that are with wages that are growing and they will buy eventually and we don't have to push them to buy. Yeah, exactly. It's not a, it's not a push to buy. It's, it's, you get there when you get there, but in the meantime, as long as the jobs are there and the wages are, uh, are where they're supposed to be, that's the level of comfort. I think most people are looking for is the wild card through all of this, um, in all of this global geopolitics right now, geopolitical factors outside the U S are keeping, uh, mortgage rates down here at home and around the U.S. Weakness in China and Europe have led to higher than normal interest in the dollar, adding that concerns over the Russian-Ukraine situation as well as with Iran and nuclear nuclear diplomacy and pushing the yield on the dollar. Does broader geopolitical risk turn out to really help the average American homeowner? I mean... No, and I don't think so. Um, yes, it may push interest rates down um, in the near term. But I don't think it's going to have a, a positive effect over the long term. Um, and I think that if anything, you're seeing, again, this surge of foreign investment because of all the geopolitical factors that are going on in the world. And that's making it more competitive for the domestic owner-occupant in the, in the market. When you're competing, at least, for example, in New York City or Miami with these investors that are coming from Russia or China, uh, Germany uh, and other places in Europe – um, uh, Middle East, when you're competing with them on buying a property and you're looking at it as the owner-occupant who wants to live there, put a roof over your head, and they're looking at it as getting money outside of their country, like, for example, China, you guys, you, those two buyers have very different motives. One is trying to put a roof over their head and the other is trying to get money out of their country. And the one that's trying to get money out of their country can definitely pay up for that property a lot more in all cash in, in many instances. So I think it makes it more competitive in some ways, the geopolitical 
uh, chaos that's going on out there in the world than it is making it better for the domestic owner-occupant. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, the local marketplace here in New York because you and I both, you know, uh, play in that arena. Sure. And when we talk about, you know, the geopolitical uh, arena out there, when we talk about pricing from a global perspective, as we mentioned earlier, because I think anything we price today here in town, whether it's a rental or whether it's an uber luxurious apartment, I think we're pri- we're pricing for the foreign uh, people, the the Chinese, mm-hmm. the, the Russians, the Europeans. How do you see, you know, how do you see that continuing or how do you see that changing in 2015? I mean, what is going to be the impetus to make a change to our current structure here in New York? Right. It's a good question. I think land land values. Land values are really what drives the housing market here in New York City because developers, if they're paying, in some instances, I had a, a meeting yesterday with a developer, with an investor that uh, put a piece of land down by the High Line under agreement, and they're paying you know north of $1,000 a foot for the dirt. If you pay $1,000 for dirt a foot, you have to be able to sell out north of you know, 3000 a foot to make any money. So they're, you're 100% right, Vince. They're pricing their, their – they have to price it at, for the foreign buyer for, or for the very wealthy uh, owner-occupant. They have to price it at the uber luxury pricing because they can't make any money if they don't do so. So, you know, what I think need, we need to focus on, and, and this is actually an interesting question that you're asking. I think we need to, you know, readdress our zoning laws, our very complicated zoning laws, historic and landmark districts, uh, our rent stabilization and uh, rent control laws. I think it's, it's inhibiting. Uh, development in this city for more affordable housing. And it's really interesting because right now you have um, the de Blasio in, uh, administration focusing on this affordable housing because they it's, it's everyone knows it's a problem. But it's it's the laws in this city. It's the, it's the rent control, the rent stabilization, and not being able to get tenants out of these small, old, dilapidated buildings that need to be knocked down for a new structure to go up. And that that supply, that new supply that's built... If you get a lot more supply on the market, the prices have to come down because there's not enough demand. And when prices come down, things become more affordable and you won't have a one-bedroom in the West Village or Tribeca that a, the salary of a U.S. president can only afford. You, you could actually have rents coming down and, and the average sort of New York City resident will pay less in rent because more product. But if you can't take that old dilapidated building down because it's got a landmark historic district or a rent control tenant that's been there for 180 years, you're not going to be able to build that new product because you can't tear those buildings down. So I think we should be looking at the laws in the city. I'm not saying get rid of all of them. Of course not. I think we need historic districts. We need landmark um, for some of these beautiful old buildings. But there's there's some unbelievably old dilapidated buildings that need to come down and new product needs to be built on, and we need to allow that to happen. I agree. Jason, it's always a fascinating uh, time to talk to you. Good information today on the uh, status of the national market and, and in New York. Please come back and join us again. We are out of time, unfortunately. That is Good Morning New York for this week. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Time Live. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us here at Voice America, all around the world, thanks for joining me, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. 
Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back. 